Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview a 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as Are they alive or not? And why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or unaffected or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years, and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person? Uh, So there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be your goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, John Crawford. He's a professor in strategy and technology management at University of Glasgow. I'm going to talk about soil, a.k.a. dirt, but they probably mean very different things. So, John, thanks for coming. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, if you would tell me about your, your research. Yeah, well, I've been studying soil now for more than 30 years. I started my career in, um, my academic career in, uh, in astrophysics, actually, and then decided that I wanted to, to move into life sciences and, and try to, to work on something that could make a difference. That's cool. Well, do you, do you ever tell people that you're a very down to earth, you know, soil of the earth type person as a joke? Well, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is when I when it, the first the last thing I was doing in when I was doing research in astrophysics was we were looking at large scale structure of the universe, so very large scales, looking at how matter clusters, and then using calculations and mathematical descriptions of that clustering to ca- try and constrain theories of the Big Bang. And then the first thing I worked on, which I started working on after a discussion over a coffee, was looking at how matter in soil clusters and whether you can use a math- the same kind of mathematical description to describe the clustering of soil uh, and whether that tells you anything That's about cool. where that structure comes from and a bit like you know is there a big bang theory for soil yeah actually i was going to ask you about parallels between the two so did you find one with that particular instance or if not oh well, yeah parallels you found? it was the same same equation in many ways 
so the, the kind of um, clustering properties that matter that galaxies have in the distribution in the in the universe is they don't fill space smoothly, so they cluster. And in fact, the way that galaxies form for reasons that we don't fully understand is, is they kind of form sheets. And you describe, but you you can describe the the way that galaxies fill space using a type of mathematics called fractal geometry, which is just a generalization of of high school geometry, but allows objects to have non-integer dimensions. So we're familiar with, you know, a two-dimensional surface like like a sheet of paper or a one-dimensional line or a three-dimensional volume. But space has non-integer dimensions because it fills, because galaxies fill space not smoothly. And same with soil. Soil particles don't fill space smoothly. They cluster and they have a, a geometry that can be described as having a dimension somewhere between two and three. Two would be a completely smooth surface. Three would be a completely solid volume. But soil with a fractal dimension of around about 2.8 is full of voids and full of, of solid material. The important oh, thing yeah, being... I've, I've heard about fractal dimensions, so go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the, the important thing is that the fact that it's it's fractal and not just some random kind of material means that there is a that the structure is organized. And in the same way that we were using the clustering properties of of galaxies to try and put some constraints on on how they could become organized and what were the forces at the very early universe that might have created that organization. Same thing with soil. When the particles are, are clustered non-randomly, then, then you have to begin to answer, ask the question, well, if it's not random, what is the organizing agent? And, and that kind of set us off on a bit of a hunt uh, for some decades, actually. Yeah, is it earthworms? Is it like mycorrhizae? Or like, you know, what, what, are, what creatures move through soil and move it around? Well, you're right that there are plant roots and and worms and things that move soil around but they tend to do it in a particular way that leaves worms have a very kind of clear foraging strategy and roots they are kind of well actually you can describe roots using fractal geometry as well but basically they are quite linear structures and they leave a very obvious signature in the soil and it's not what we're seeing and the other important thing is that the organization that's going on in soil is happening at very small scales. So we're picking it up in, in structures that are smaller than the, the breadth of a human hair. And that's significant because those are the structures that hold on to water against gravity. So when it rains, the soil fills up with water, but that water is held in these very small pores that are smaller than a human hair. And if soil's good at one thing, a bit kind of fundamental property of soil that, that gives it this this ability to to support um, terrestrial life is that uh, it allows air and water to mix over a very broad range of environmental conditions. So the puzzle was what could be organizing soil at those very, very small scales? And, and so attention turned to the microorganisms in soil. Well, question, when you say it allows uh, air and water to mix in a special way in different environments, what does that mean? What are some examples? Well, life require require like, most of the life on Earth requires oxygen and carbon and water. So you need oxygen and water available to support most of the life on Earth. And when when life moved out of the oceans onto land, it didn't leave water behind. It went to the places where the, there still was water, which is in these fine uh, 
pores in, well, it wouldn't have been soil at that time, but it would have been rock dust and stuff like that. And over time, soil has evolved to contain both air and water over a broad range of environmental conditions, but actually to maximise the interface between air and water. So the living stuff in soil accesses its oxygen in a dissolved form in water. And so by maximising the surface area between water and air, you maximise the amount of oxygen that can get into soil. And that's what supports the microbes that live there. So does soil have grains or domains or how do you differentiate one clump versus another on different scales? Like, What do you call the clumps? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. So soil scientists for a long time have talked about aggregates. So when you pick up soil and you kind of crush it in your hand, it breaks up into pieces. And soil scientists have studied these pieces for a long time. And, and farmers will look at a soil after they've ploughed and they'll look at the, the pieces. And a good farmer will be able to tell you how healthy their soil is just by looking at it and smelling it. Some people even taste it. And they, they're seeing something in the soil that we find very difficult to describe scientifically. So the smallest scale soil is made up of, of a range of particle sizes. Of course, you get stones and rocks, but then smaller than that, you get grains of sand. And then you'll get silt particles, which are smaller still. And then clay particles, which can be millionths of a, of a metre. And that combination of these different particle sizes... These are the things that cluster together to form the structures that hold water. And the way they do that, and this is this is the work that we've been doing over the, the last uh, 10 or 15 years, looking at how these particle arrangements form at these smaller scales. And what we think is going on, and we've done some experiments and some theory to, to try and figure this out, is that the microorganisms at the smaller scale um, so you're talking about things that are just uh, 10, 10 to 40 microns in size, and a micron is a millionth of a meter. These things are active in soil. They're eating organic matter. They're breathing oxygen. Uh, they're using water. If they are in a, an environment that is very favorable to their to their growth, they tend to grow fast and they tend to produce extracellular substance, a little bit like like a kind of glue it's a long chain carbon polymers uh, which which forms a kind of biofilm but that um, extracellular polymeric substance as it's called EPS acts like a glue and so the areas that are favorable to growth the microbes produce a lot of glue and we think that that glue will be stabilizing those particle arrangements where the activity is highest and in other areas of the soil where there are which are not favourable to growth and where there are no microbes, those particles are less stable because they're not being glued together. Microbes produce this glue as what, like a metabolite after yeah. they've digested parts of the soil? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, 
the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's right. It's just extra carbon that they don't need, um, but they, they exude it into their local environment. Partly it helps prevent them drying out, but also it has this additional property that it binds the particles in their immediate environment and stabilizes their immediate environment. And what we were able to show over time is that that simple feedback between activity and local environment stabilization leads to organization on scales much larger than the microbes. And and that organization looks like uh, a structure which is a much more connected pore space than, than would happen by chance. And that's because the areas that are less favorable to microbial growth are being disturbed by wetting and drying cycles, which the water films are dragging over the particles and pulling them apart. And the areas that are more stable tend to stay the way they are. And that process over time means that the more favorable environments are preserved compared with the least favorable environments, which means that gradually the environment that the microbes are in dominate the the structure of soil. And so over time, the the environments become more favorable to life. So do the soil essentially remodel parts? I mean, sorry, the microbes remodel the soil like a, a Swiss cheese with you know enough pores and passages to allow water and and air yeah. to mix, and then they yeah. they just keep moving and remodeling the soil like that. That's right. So the physics and the biology together make soil, and it, it's probably more accurate to think about soil as an organism, uh, as a composite organism made up of multiple cells that are kind of cooperating and and creating this this structure, and and that structure in turn favors the the growth of the organisms and and stores more water and allows more water to flow more easily through soil which then supports plants and of course it's in the microbes interest to that that the soil is good for supporting plants because ultimately when plants die that's microbe food uh, and so the whole system kind of works together in a nice kind of way um and that's that is the basis we believe uh, that's the basis of of the natural fertility of, of soil. What, uh, are you able to identify which microbes make this structure? Can you compare different soils, you know, side by side to see of the structure, how different it is, and, you know, what are some of the nuances of it? That's exactly what we did, because it's one thing to have a theory, another thing to try and provide evidence for that. Um, so what we did was we took some field soil and then we sterilized it and it's surprisingly hard to sterilize soil. So we, we had to expose it to gamma radiation twice um, to kill pretty much all the living things in there. And then we we set up a lot of different systems where, where we added uh, a single species of a bacterium, a single species of a fungus. And then we, we added sequentially diluted field soil. So we took field soil and then diluted it with with our sterile soil until we had almost homeopathic levels of field soil mixed in with our sterile soil. And we, we just then studied them in the lab and, and, and looked to see what happened. And the way that we measure these small structures is by using very high resolution X-ray microtomography. So it's like a CT scan. So it's the same if you're sick, you go to hospital, you get a CT scan. If, if we can check the health of soil by giving it a CT scan, but it's very high resolution. 
much higher than the ones in hospital. And we can see the structures forming. And the structures formed quite differently depending on not so much the species, but the forms of life that were in there. And at least in in our laboratory studies, what seemed to matter the most was the ratio of, of the fungi to the bacteria. So fungi seem to be very good at aggregating particles and stabilizing particles and creating these organized structures. So the fungi more than the bacteria. But on the other hand, of course, you can't have fungi without bacteria because they're, they kind of get on together. And it's the, the fungi that seem to be important. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, when you say important, what appears to be the roles in soil construction of fungi versus bacteria versus earthworms versus other stuff, or at least fungi versus well, other bacteria? Yeah, so the fungi, I guess bacteria are, at the, are kind of the smallest type of living organism in soil. I mean, there are viruses which are even smaller, and you can argue with your favorite biologist about whether a virus is, is a, an independent living organism, but, but the bacteria... Are, uh, are, the, are the smallest scale thing. The fungi, they, we're familiar with mushrooms that we see above the ground, but below the ground, the fun, fungi form a mesh. It's a bit like a, a net that grows through the soil, a network of fibers. And where there's, again, where there's a favorable environment, you get a dense network that you can imagine binding particles together. And the, the fungal mesh is quite strong. Um, now we don't we don't have direct evidence because fun, fungi also release extracellular polymeric substances, so so this this glue like stuff. Um, so whether it's physical enmeshment or whether it's it's EPS, my guess is it is still EPS, but we don't have firm evidence for that. If you have a particular part of soil and the fungi come in and remodel it first, do the bacteria leave because it's already done, or do they? re-remodel it is there a comp- competition yeah well good question so bacteria if you set up like little competitive environments if you could to see what happens you know like deliberately uh, introduce one than the other yeah look i mean there's myriad things that we could do to look at how to try and tease out a little bit more information on what we think is going on i mean bacteria use the fungal hyphae like a kind of a highway so they move along the they move along this network as well and so there's no doubt that the fungi and, and the bacteria are, are mixing and remixing and, and modeling the soil uh, differently as a result. But at the end of the day, it's not, it's not in the interest of any single organism to outcompete all the rest. There's a lot of cooperation goes on in soil because you can imagine that if, let's say, there's a, a bacterium that, that happens to, to model the soil in a way that's perfect for it, but not for everybody else. Well, it, it won't survive because it can only survive because the other organisms are there doing their bit. And what I mean by that is that organic matter, when it falls in soil, is a chemically very complex thing. And you need lots of different uh, molecular apparatus in the cell to break down that stuff. And no single organism has all of the toolkit. And so they kind of, each each type of or the, or the functions that are required to break down organic matter are shared across a very large number of different kinds of organisms that all work in a very cooperative way. And so, uh, and I, again, I'm speculating, we haven't got, got the evidence for this, but the, the, the outcome will be that the environment um, will, will be one that, that suits 
your average organism, which means, you know, that there's plenty of oxygen to, to promote fast metabolism. And there's what, what, is it, um, what does it look like if you take the soil right near the root of a plant and kind of crumble it up? What does it look and feel like versus, um, you know, soil that's farther away from a root and the differences? Yeah, very, a lot of difference. The, this, the soil near to a plant root is in some ways simpler because there's a lot of quite simple organic matter coming out of plant roots. So about 20% of the photosynthate, the energy that's absorbed by plants and is made into stuff, about 20% of that just comes out of the root, gets exuded out of the root into the soil. The argument being that that helps support the microbes that in turn support the plant. But close to the root, because that stuff is very simple, it allows some organisms to to dominate and so the, the the microbial community is less rich in a diversity sense and simpler compared with the microbes that are further away from the root which will be much more complex because they have to deal with more complex type of organic material like a bit of dead root or some you know, leaf material or something or some recycled bits of dead microorganism um, that needs to be well, broken down if i um what if I took some soil and I, I let microbes work at it and prepare it and I planted, a, I don't know, a pea plant and I took another set of soil and I let mycorrhizae remodel it first and then I put another plant in there. What do you think would be the difference in growth? Well, there'd be a big difference. I mean, that's the basis of, of agricultural rotation. So we know that if you plant the same crop like wheat more than three times, two or three times in a row, then that will create... Again, a, a simpler microbial community in the soil, but it, because certain types of of microorganism will will start to dominate, and and there's a, a type of a fungus called Rhizoctonia that that is a disease of wheat, and and it can cause devastating lo- loss in yield, which is why why farmers don't keep growing wheat, and they will mix it in with other kinds of of plants to maintain that diversity and prevent any single organism dominating, particularly a diseased organism, dominating the soil. Um, so it, it definitely makes a difference and it definitely affects the, the, the growth of plant, largely through through pathogens, um, although there are some organisms which can stimulate the growth of plants. They, they release uh, signals and, and chemicals into the, into the soil near to the root that stimulate the growth of the plant. So what, uh, I mean, what have you learned? What's, uh, what's next in your investigation of soil that you want to figure out? What I'm focusing on now is how to put all this into practice. And, you know, I, I like most scientists, are very concerned about the state of the environment, particularly climate and the over-extraction of water globally um, and food security and the loss of biodiversity caused by um, the, the fact that agriculture is converting so much natural habitat into 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 monoculture. So what I want to try and do is use the knowledge that I've been finding out about soil and and then work with a number of organizations to see if we can restore the health of soil. So yeah, what is what is a if you if I take two soils, one that's been beaten to death, you know, in my hand and I crumble it versus like a real juicy loamy Rich one, what will I notice? What's the difference physically? And then if I zoom in with a microscope, what will I notice? Right. So like I say, farmers know a good soil um, 
from the texture and the and the smell. And the smell is is often the stuff that microbes release, just uh, metabolites, so particularly fungi. That smell that you get after it rains is is basically uh, metabolites that that come come that are released by by fungi in the soil. You can smell a good soil; it smells alive. Uh, the color will be dark because that's the carbon. But how that actually translates into the functions that we that we depend on is basically what I've been working on. And and that is manifest in in the way that that soil organizes itself at these very, very small scales that you can't see with your eye, but you can see using high resolution CT. And that is this highly connected pore space. So we've we've looked at soil from some very unique experiments. So the oldest scientific experiment in the world is called the Broadbok experiment in Rothamsted in England. And it's been running for 176 years, continuous wheat under a whole range of nutrient conditions, one of which is a lot of organic matter added. And, and the others are a bunch of um, different inorganic nutrients, different blends of inorganic nutrients. And, and one treatment has had nothing added just continuous wheat for nearly 200 years and one other treatment was left back to nature and it's now a woodland and we can take soil from all of these treatments and compare it and then compare it to another experiment that's nearby which is just under 80 years old where soil has been left bare no plants no nutrients added for nearly 80 years and of course that is I guess what you would call pretty dead soil. It's not, not had any nutrients or any carbon or anything going into it for all that time. And we can compare the structures of all these things. And of course, the soil that's had nothing in it for 80 years has a pore space that's very low amount, very low volume of pores, and they are almost completely disconnected. If you look at the soil that's had wheat growing in it for nearly 200 years, but no nutrients added. It's better. There's a little bit more pore space and it's a little bit more connected, but it's still pretty flaky. And then if you compare that with continuous wheat grown for 200 years, where there's been farm manure added every year, that soil has lots of pore space, very highly connected. And it looks to all intents and purposes, just like the back to nature. Mm. So it is, it is possible to farm to plough every year, to grow the same crop every year, yield about 10, 12 tonnes every year, and still have a soil that looks as good as if you'd left it to nature. What happens in um, in a ploughed or disturbed, like if I look at the top, I don't know, six inches or a foot of soil that's been worked, plants have grown through it, et cetera, and I look below that, what will I see? What's the difference? Yeah, so that, that's, that's interesting. I, as you go down... Deep in, deeper into soil, it does change. Um, yeah, like what's the aerobic depth at which microbes can live and other things can live? I'm sure there's like below a certain depth, it's all anaerobic, right? Or no? Well, yes and no, but but even if it's anaerobic, you can have microbes. Actually, even near the surface, you get anaerobic parts of soil, little spots uh, in the soil that are anaerobic um, because they, the pores are not connected to to the outside. But generally speaking, as you go lower... In, deeper in the soil, the, the oxygen concentration drops off with depth quite quickly, and so does the so does the number 
of of microbes pretty much exponentially actually so the the important the sort of biologically important or, or or most of the biological activity will be in the first 50 centimeters but it does depend on the kind of soil and this comes back to the story about what soils made of so some soils we call them sandy soils are mainly made up of sand particles and they don't have the same number of these smaller silty and clay particles now we've studied those and these soils don't seem to have anything like the capacity to organize to become organized compared with a, a soil that has more m- more of this uh, silt and and clay particles in them to to help create these small scale structures so something like a sandy soil it will be aerobic so air will get further down into that because there's less water in it to block the 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 movement of oxygen and it, it bigger particles bigger spaces but it doesn't organize itself and that translates into into those soils having very much less carbon in them and this is a key part of the story. What I'm focusing on now is, is what happens to the carbon. How does the carbon get translated into the key functions that matter? And how do we speed all this up so that we can restore soil health globally, so that we can draw down carbon um, from the atmosphere where, where carbon levels are too high and causing climate change, and fix soil so that it holds more water, so that we can use water more efficiently. And there's, there's this interesting interrelationship between carbon structure water storage and and greenhouse gas emissions that make soil such a fascinating and important material to understand yeah no very interesting what what's the what is the future of your research looks like in the near term are there any uh, hypotheses you're close to figuring out um yeah so i'm i'm what i'm writing about now is some recent analysis of an experiment that where soil coming back to these very unique experiments at Rothamsted we we looked at some some of the soil that's been left with no plants and no nutrients in it for 80 years some of that was converted back into grassland and wheat production uh, about 12 years ago so we've been studying how quickly what is a very tired and uh, almost dead soil how quickly that comes back to life and how quickly it organizes and we've got some fascinating results uh, which show that the uh, the you can see the evidence of organization just a few years after you start growing plants back in in the soil again and after five years you've got some very clear evidence of this organization but the nature of the organization has given us new clues in thinking about how soil exists in this sort of dynamical state, how, how it maintains this ability to, to reconfigure and reorganize and adjust according to changes in the environment. It shows that, that soil has a lot of the properties of certain kinds of physical systems and a lot of biological systems that exist in this state that's the boundary between a completely chaotic, disordered state and a wholly organized state. And it's called, you call these things a, a critical state. A bit like, the best known example is, is if you if you freeze, if you cool water down, it suddenly changes to ice around about zero degrees. And if you heat water up, it changes from ice to liquid. And then around about 100 degrees, it changes into gas. And it not much changes in water as you go 
from 100 to zero or 100 to, to two degrees. But as you go from two degrees to zero, it changes dramatically. And the fact that living systems are in this state very close to that point where they flip from one state to another, that's called the critical state. And the, the argument is that living systems exist in that critical state because it allows them to adapt quickly, to change quickly according to changes in their environment. If they were completely organized, then nothing much changes when the environment changes. So you can imagine water at 40 degrees is pretty much the same as water at 50 degrees. The properties are pretty much the same. But water at five degrees and water at minus two degrees is very, very different. Um, so the ability of, of systems to, to change state in a still maintaining organization, but moving quickly is thought to be a key property of living systems. And we've now got evidence that soil is also in this critical state. Mm. Um, okay. and, and the critical, the, the driving variable instead of temperature, as it is with, with water, is carbon carbon flux or the flow of carbon into the system. So if the carbon flux is too low, soil becomes completely disorganized, chaotic. If you increase the carbon, then it starts to organize. And okay. it, a little bit of carbon can make a big difference as you move away from that critical point, can make a big difference to how the soil behaves. Well, very good. Well, John, we're just about out of time, but what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? I, I write for the World Economic Forum. So my, the, a, lot of, a lot of my time now is spent working with global corporates who have got the, the reach and governance to deliver change quickly on the ground. So I, I write for the World Economic Forum, of course, my, my scientific papers, but not always very accessible. And uh, my, my website at, at the University of Glasgow. I think you just email me. Okay. Most people can look up John Crawford, University of Glasgow, Soil, and they'll, they'll pretty much come to your website, right? Yeah, or, yeah just okay. all, all my contact details are on, on the website. Well, very good. Well, John, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm uh, delighted. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.